Hello? Yeah, hello? Yes? Yeah, I'm looking for an artist. Oh, okay. I'm looking for an artist. Alright. Yeah. Sounds like blah blah blah, and then blah 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 blah. Yeah, that sounds even to me. Blah blah blah. Blah blah blah. Which do you prefer? Oh, I don't care. Do you have a preference? Yeah, I want to do the soft. I want to do the soft. Whoa, where did all the cum come from? You just brought it out. I didn't know I that. The natural berry. Well, what's up, friends? Today we have a very, very special friend and special guest. Um, His name starts with A. Any guesses? You're wrong. Who are you, my friend? Asher Arlington Payne. Wow. Asher is a very special friend of mine, and he... Is a hu- he's had a huge impact on my life. We were actually just having a conversation downstairs. Uh, he just got in town, and he's going to tell you what he's doing here and what he's doing in his life. But also, we were having a conversation downstairs that kind of sparked this impromptu episode. So welcome to Looking for Artists. This series is devoted to like exploring the artists that are among us, and right now you're here. You're part of... You've been a part of my life. Oh, Sirius activated. You've been a part of my life, dude. And so I want to share who you are and what you're doing with everybody who's listening. Which, we have listeners where, Julie? Um, Oh, I guess only in Japan. Oh, Egypt? Europe. Europe? Maybe Hong Kong? Who knows? But what's up, dude? Not much. Uh, Let's start with a question of the day. Question of the day for you. I'll give you two options. Um, One, what is your earliest childhood memory? Uh, And two, what's your favorite song? Yeah, earliest childhood memory would be my dad, John Gary Payne. Him holding me when I was in diapers in a rocking chair when I lived in the suburbs of Atlanta. It was our Kellen Courthouse mm-hmm. uh, right outside of Atlanta. He was singing hymns, How Great Thou Art and Great Is Thy Faithfulness, rocking me to sleep. And I think the the biggest thing that I remember would be a really old brass lamp with a really harsh light mm-hmm. right next to the rocking chair. That's probably the most vivid thing. But I also do remember hearing my dad's voice singing those songs to me. That 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 definitely be my earliest memory. Whoa. Does did he have a nice voice in your memory? Yeah, he has an amazing voice. He he wanted to be a salesman. So he always talks about how he was never good at school. And how he always wanted to get out of school just to work. And maybe that's just a generational thing, but... Huh. Did he do that? Yeah. 
I mean, he finished. Oh. He played football at East Tennessee State University and then hated school, did the frat thing for a while, and then um, uh, graduated and became a salesman for Bell South way back in the day, which eventually I think became AT&T. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, I remember the Bell South uh, icon logo. Yeah. Yeah, he would. I remember he would t- also take us when we were kids on these road trips where he would actually um, do quality control for these different public payphones, like make sure that they were cr- make sure they're like labeled correctly or licensed correctly. I don't. Mm. I didn't really remember exactly what he did, but we would sometimes stop at rest stops in Georgia, and he would like go to all the payphones and like check them. Whoa, to make sure they were okay. I guess so. It was, and it was less of a technical job. Like he was definitely a salesman, but I remember him actually, maybe it was him just like going above and beyond. Yeah. Like he was just genuinely interested in the work. Yeah. That's he, cool. Yeah. He crushed it. Um, and my dad, yeah, he had a high tenor voice, really beautiful voice, but he never, I, th- he, I think he was part of, this might've been generational as well. Like he, he didn't sing much at all. Like he was so focused on, uh, in his mind, like a practical application of his skills. Right. And perhaps singing wasn't that application. It was work. But his voice was one of the, still is one of the best voices, male voices I've ever heard in my life, easily. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you kind of said this uh, in that story, but you, where are you from? I'm from Atlanta. Yep. I, I grew up outside the city, first 10 years. And then. My dad wanted land, and so he moved the entire family up to northeast Georgia, bought 30 acres. I think, I think he, his hope was that it would be developed, that area would be developed, and we'd be able to like use it as an investment. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, nothing shifted. Carnesville, Georgia, in 1999, was like 560 people. And uh, it's now 2019, and it's still like 556 people that live there. Wow. No, no growth, no change, at least not to my knowledge. That's crazy. Um, so did you, once you moved, like, to, did you like Atlanta? Basically, did you like growing up in the Southeast? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I'm hella, hella Southern. I'll always be Southern. And I, there's a lot of pride that I have in being from the South. Yeah. And I think it's important that human beings like myself stay in the South. I think there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of high ceilings in Atlanta, especially in Atlanta, given the history of the city and the level of like diversity, right. it being such a, an iconically black city, mm-hmm. as well as like the bastion of civil rights. And not only racially, but also sexually. I mean, it's kind of the lighthouse for the Southeast, you know, like young, young queer men and women, or those who don't identify as cisgender coming out to their, their families in the Southeast and not being able to stay. Like it's actually second to New York in LGBTQ plus homeless youth. Really? Is the city of Atlanta. Yeah. Because they had nowhere to go besides Atlanta because they'd be kicked out. Right. And so So they all just find their way there. Yeah. I had buddies who a lot of my friends in high school were, they weren't out and I was like a theater kid. Mm Mm-hmm. But a lot of gay friends who who weren't out yet, but they would. I remember them telling me they'd go down to Atlanta sometimes, like they'd drive down for the weekend or something. I never understood why, but it was because they had friends who were out in Atlanta, and they'd be able to like be a part of their gay community down there, and they couldn't be in Carnesville, Georgia, or Franklin County. 
I mean, now that you're saying this, I remember taking uh, one of my earliest dates with my now wife to Atlanta. And now that I remember, we went to this like gay coffee shop. And I remember thinking, this is not something I would see in Chattanooga. This is something like it seemed pointedly different. And I liked that about Atlanta. I liked that. Yeah, um, Atlanta's an interesting city. I mean, it is. A lot of people think of Atlanta and they think of traffic or they think of like the Atlanta glam scene. I think of Six Flags. Six Flags. Yeah. Or they think of the suburbs or just like a sprawling metropolis or they think of the airport. But the level of yep. human rights and human dignity that exists and was cultivated by that city and the humans in that city for decades and decades and decades. Monumental. Monumental and unparalleled in ways compared to other cities. The Southeast is a weird place when it comes to history. Yeah. Untapped, like un, kind of unknown history. Yeah. And there's so much room for growth. You're still there, right? Yeah. I'm still in Atlanta. I live there. I'm in the city with my brother, my bestie. From th- now and back until back from when you were a kid, was there any time that you spent outside of Atlanta or Georgia? Uh, Georgia, no. Uh, Well, I guess, I mean, college years. So, I'm trying to think of the best way to share this. My experience was different. I I mean, I, I think everyone can say that, sure. But I grew up homeschooled, but not... My parents, it wasn't like a, uh, what do we call the, uh, it's not, it wasn't like a, a, a religious reaction to like the public school system. Homeschooling like didn't have any real foundation at that time. This was the late eighties, early nineties, but my parents were, in my opinion, somewhat ahead of their time, at least in their experience with alternative education, Hmm. seeing that at that time, the public school system and even private systems, they didn't seem super helpful for kids my age. And so my parents saw homeschooling as an option for just a better education and not not a reaction to secularism Hmm. and not an opportunity to like shelter us from like the scary things in the world. I think that my dad in his own way, he he was definitely reacting to secularism and wanting to like provide a hedge of protection around us. But my my mom especially saw it as just an opportunity for us to learn differently. That's interesting. Yeah. And us moving to the middle of nowhere after I was 10, it's like we moved when I was about, yeah, 99, I was 11. My nickname was Yankee. Why? Because I didn't have an accent. Never. I played baseball up there, sandlot baseball. I picked watermelons and planted strawberries, <laughs> and like I stuck out. Everyone, Yankee. everyone assumed I was gay. You yeah. know, all the baseball players like knew I was. They they thought I was cool, and um, I never really hung out with them. I was known. I was pretty popular, but all of my buddies like were fringe. Like they were, uh, they would they would have named themselves like outcasts. You know. Yeah. So I kind of yeah. like, I, I straddled those worlds while I was in high school. And then I just got the hell out of there. Did you play sports? Yeah. Played a, a lot of baseball, played a but, lot of basketball. Yeah. Ooh. What position? Uh, it was never competitive. I used to go, I actually never played in a true basketball game, but I would go to basketball camps. Basketball non-stop. camps are so fun. Well, we, we've talked about this before. Like uh, I'm not a competitive person. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah. Like I love team. I love community. I love relationships, but the concept of competing against another person 
like I don't have that like edge, that drive. Do you do you have it? I understand that because when it comes to games like board games, I don't give a fuck. I'm like I pass. You know what? Oh, roll the die. Okay, seven. But move. Can someone move my guy? But when it comes to like sports or physical activities, I find this uh, this trigger that clicks in my head where I have to out best myself, and it's not to prove. Maybe it's to, it's definitely to prove something to myself, but it's not always to prove something to other people. It's like something within myself where I'm like, oh, I even if it's um last week I used this twenty pound kettlebell. Let me see what thirty five feels like. Wow, that feels good. I can see the progress. Like I can see myself getting better in that way. Mm. Do you did you have that in basketball or was it more just let's all get together and have fun? No, I I think it was more so I had a lot of raw talent and there wasn't a catalyst in me that pushed me to compete with myself. I think it was more so just an exercise of what gives me the most joy, which sounds like perhaps a very millennial thing to say, but I felt as if, I feel as if my entire life was me figuring out what gives me the most joy and also through what can I have the most impact. That's beautiful. So this makes me curious. As far as expressing yourself or finding things that give you joy, what was like, what was the first thing that you discovered or that was shown to you? I mean, your first memory had to do with music, so that makes me think something with music, but maybe not. No, it was definitely music. Interestingly enough, though, we weren't allowed to listen to music, really. My brother and I growing up, we weren't allowed even Christian music. We grew up in a Christian household, mm-hmm. but there were times where these Christian compilation CDs would come out called Wow. Yeah. Wow, 95, 96, 97, yeah. 99. And my dad would take them, and with a Sharpie, he would listen to every single track. And if it was too rocky or sounded too secular, he would cross it off with a Sharpie. Even if the words were, yep. Even if it was, we love you, we thank you, God. No matter what, wow. And so we had these curated (laughs) Christian music CDs that we would listen to. Interesting. That and like gospel music, acapella Christian music was fine for some reason. Hymns, (coughs) yeah, hymns. Yeah. But I, my brother and I, memorized every single word. We would memorize Lion King. We'd memorize Aladdin. Any music that we had, we absorbed and digested as thoroughly as we possibly could. And I think a lot of it was just our raw talent was knee jerk reacting to the sheltering that we had experienced. So by the time that we were like, I was in middle school, I realized that my joy lived within music, specifically in singing. And I grew up playing piano and stuff and I loved piano, but even eight years of classical piano study, I had a raw talent, but it didn't give me enough joy where I felt competitive enough, where I wanted to pursue it professionally, sure, or sure. like I almost, I was drained by it, by the and thought I, of that. Or uh, let me rephrase it. By the time I was doing really well in classical piano, and I was uh, headlining recitals is the wrong the wrong term, but being the last to play at a piano recital in the suburbs of Atlanta meant that you were the best of that age group, right? But at the end of those eight years, it didn't give me a lot of joy. And so I stopped. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not going to continue doing this because mm-hmm. it doesn't give me joy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you asked what, what, what my favorite song was, Here, There, and Everywhere by the Beatles. I didn't really, I didn't listen to the Beatles at all 
until I was in college because my parents never, I was never exposed to it. What's that, that one like a uh, uh, moment in the evolutionary uh, timeline where it's like the amoebic, that weird explosion where like a bunch of life uh, burst uh, it was this one, is this one time period? I forget the name. I wish I could remember it, but it's, it kind of sounds like <clears throat> that knee jerk reaction was like just this, this, oh, this exposure of, of all of the options. And it was just like all the beauty could just rushed in, you know, where you're like, I could go to, I could do this. I could sing like this. I could listen to that. Mm. I could do that. Did it feel overwhelming or was it more just your curiosity led you to the next thing? Yeah, um, I'll share a story. It's actually about my brother. We were, my brother and I, actually, I don't even think I was in the car. Ethan and my mom stopped at an Eckerd pharmacy. There used to be Eckerd pharmacies in suburban Atlanta. And mom went inside to like, I don't know, probably pick up photos that were being developed. Mm -hmm. And my brother sneakily turned on Star 94, the secular radio station. Uh -oh. And Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls started playing. And he told me that was the moment that the world opened up to him because it was the first time that he heard a song so beautiful and so complex. And that's like for like music connoisseurs. I mean, yeah, we see it as a nostalgic, really beautiful song. But for music connoisseurs, it's just a pop song right. before human before humans like my brother and I who were so de depraved, deprived, <laughs> deprived. Yeah. Well, Depraved. at that time, we also believed that we were depraved. But we'll talk about that in a second. Um, yeah, no, seriously. But we were hella deprived. And there were moments here and there where I thought, oh my God, like there is so much more out there that I've never experienced. And I think that that was, I think titular moments like that compounded to where my parents eventually realized, wow, like there's nothing that we can do helpfully in sheltering our sons from music. Like, this is what they love. Like, that was when I found my joy. I didn't start taking voice lessons until I went to college. I auditioned. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I took, when I was in high school. Because I, just for the listeners, I, I met you in this point of the narrative, of your journey, let's say. Yeah. Because it's not written yet. Parts of it are. But, you know. I, I remember hearing your voice and you were maybe t two years into the program at that point. That's crazy to, to think that, that that was your first like couple years of voice lessons. Yeah, I, <clears throat> when I was in high school, I was still homeschooled, but I took classes at the local college. And specifically I sang in like the choral group there. And I met with the choral teacher every now and then to sing and he taught me a few songs. We did like vocal pedagogy classes, but there's no real formal training. I then graduated high school and to get a, literally I wanted to get a scholarship at Covenant College. And I was like, I'm guessing I'm just gonna study business. You know, I guess that's what people study. That's what my dad studied. He always told me that I'd be a great salesman one day, but I never wanted to be a salesman. And I'll never forget, I realized, well, you know, Covenant's kind of expensive, so I'll try and get a scholarship in music, so maybe I'll sing. Hmm. And so I sang at, at an audition for a scholarship, and Dr. Ken Anderson was sitting there, and he said, we will give you the scholarship as long as you're a voice major. Whoa. And that was the reason why I was 
a voice major at Covenant College was because wow. I auditioned with Go the Distance from Hercules. Everything circles back to Disney. <laughs> and that was the first that was the first iteration of voice lessons I ever had. I was 17 as a freshman. I'd just turned 17 a month before. Were you nervous? <clears throat> um or were you more just going the distance? It felt a little, yeah, right. It felt a little it felt accidental, honestly. Yeah. Like I'd stumbled into something really interesting. Yeah. And singing always gave me joy, but I never realized classically speaking that it was a talent that I had. <clears throat> and then it was my sophomore year that he said, Asher, you could live off of your voice. I didn't know what he meant. But I kept studying and I still retained a lot of joy from it. And I guess when I graduated, I thought, I guess next step would be go to grad school and study voice. Because practically speaking, I couldn't get a job professionally singing or teaching if I just had a Bachelor of Music. So I then went to Athens, Georgia, started a band with my brother, and then thought, maybe I'll get a master's. So I started working on a master's. Halfway through a master's in vocal performance from UGA, I realized I have no desire to sing opera. Even though I had buddies who were singing it, I felt like... There's a level of love and obsession with the art form that I just didn't have. I just didn't really care. Again, joy. I was searching for joy. Like what gave me the most joy? <clears throat> what could give me the, allow me to have the most impact? I didn't feel like opera with my strengths and my personality, that niche industry would serve me and yes. that I could properly serve the cities in which I live with yeah. my voice in those industries. Yeah. It felt a little confining. Yeah. So then I toured in a band for a while and then my brother and I moved back to the city moved back inside of Atlanta toured with the same the same band yeah toured, we've been touring with uh, Easter Island for with a break in the middle about 10 years great music oh thanks yeah um, okay so music are there any other artistic or creative endeavors that you that you discovered along the way I always loved visual art my brother was always better than I was and again, I wasn't competitive enough to want to be better than him. So I just, figured, I just figured that would be his thing, right? Like, well, he's good at this. He's better than I am. So maybe that's, that's his part of the world that he's carving. So why would I want to impede his space if he's already starting to really master it? So I, like, I stopped. This is interesting for me to hear as an oldest child because I didn't think about that at all. I was like, let me do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I didn't think about what impact that had on my younger siblings. Hmm. And I don't know if we've had talks about them saying stuff like that, but um, I just, it makes me wonder. Like the sibling stuff is weirder and weirder as you get older. Uh, I look back and think, man, was I a good, was I a good brother? Um, but that's interesting that you bring up your brother and looking like kind of gauging what you're doing based off what he's doing. Cause in my, my memory of you, you're just this person that, that would do what interested you, you know, what had your cu curious curiosity and you just, you were bold, just a bold person. No. Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of it stems from wanting to find joy. Wanting to find that joy. Wanting to find joy. And it didn't give me joy to compete with my brother and his endeavors. Yeah. I wanted to carve something out for myself. Right. That was just Asher. Right. Right. 
Right. And that was honestly free of competition. Sounds like you had a similar revelation within the opera world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, I mean, I, I decided not to go into something so niche that some of my peers were. I, I was told after one opera that I, if I continued to work on my voice classically, <clears throat> that I was, in her words, the entire package. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I have no desire to be in this space. Like that's, that's such, those, those words are so wonderful and I don't want it to sound as if I'm not grateful for those words or not taking advantage of these gifts. But if, if the gifts that I have aren't putting me in a place where I can truly impact the world in healthy ways and also take care of myself by experiencing true joy, then I have no desire. I had no, I just had no desire to be a part of it. And I don't think that I was able to name it in the way that I'm naming it for you now. Mm-hmm. 10 years later, mm-hmm. it was just a gut feeling like, no, there's, there's, there are other things out there that are better suited for Asher. Boy, oh boy. That's, I'm glad that that it was, cl- is clear to you. I feel like a lot of artists and creatives get stuck in expectation, whether it's expectation that they've set themselves of, I'm going to be you know, X or Y or Z and only that. And they, they don't, you know, they close themselves off to building something, building onto something that could be bigger. I remember coming to um, university to see you in one of your operas. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's nailing it for sure. But I remember talking to Julie afterwards and saying, like, I don't, I, like, is that something you would want to do, though? Like opera? It seems like so, you said confining, right? And I get that that there's culture there and it's important and some people do find joy in that and there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like a lot of people are, are t- they see the risk in being open, you know? Like they see the risk in opening themselves up to being more than just one thing, and I think that they they they're, they're confining themselves in a, you know in a weird way. Mm. I feel like I was doing that for a while, um, and looking back, it's easy to kind of think of like my my both of my brother and brothers in law joke about me like being a hobby guy i pick up so many hobbies and it, i can't help it dude i'm just interested in everything and when i get into something i obsess over it and it's so it's easy for me to look back with a, the awareness that i have now kind of similar to what you're speaking to thinking that i was just picking up these hobbies and you know, confining myself until I broke out of that box and found the next thing that I was going to pursue. But I think I was also searching for joy. I think in many ways I've found that joy. And we were talking downstairs earlier, like I I do feel happy, but I I also feel like I can see the things that I, that, that are still kind of shitty in the world. And I want to, like happiness is something to be attained, I think on a daily basis. Mm. It's kind of like marriage. You don't get married and you're just married. You Mm. choose to be married every day. Mm. Like you have to go out there and get it, you know? And so 
I guess like you're, you're kind of bringing clarity to my own past. Maybe mm. I've just searching for joy. It's not necessarily a negative thing. Even if they, even if, if you're out there, you're a, you're a creative and you have a bunch of hobbies. It's like, just pursue them, you know, mm. pursue your curiosity. Mm. You're, we're all just searching for joy. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it negates any power that a gift has. Should it not give you joy? I know a lot of humans who have amazing talents and gifts that don't necessarily give them a bunch of joy and it's not necessarily their goal. Right. But it's still such a powerful tool. Yeah. Either for change in the world or to just bless someone or to inspire someone. And that I think is just as important as my own personal journey to find joy. I mean, Asher Mm -hmm. means happy and blessed. And I feel like I was, I've been blessed even though I'm, I'm outside of the church now Mm -hmm. in that language I still tie to a lot of my spiritual context, I still feel as if I have had a lot of opportunity, a lot of privilege and opportunity to pursue a number of things. But where was the happiness, right? If Asher means both happy and blessed, like it's not just about having that raw talent, like playing, being able to play basketball or being good at baseball or yeah. singing. Like, yeah. like what, like where was my, where was the joy? And like those two had to come together. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Dude, what's marriage like? Marriage is, um, I mean, for me, I can only speak for me, right? But you know how they say you're never ready? You just decide to do it. It kind of feels like that every day so far. And I'm happy in my marriage. I think it's great. I think I found a person who's very, very special, who, who understands me, even when I don't feel like I'm fully understanding myself, you know? And I think that that's rare. Um, I think that she, she definitely pulls out good things in me and boosts that. And also if there are run-ins, it's, Sometimes it's just because we're different people, but sometimes it makes me evaluate, oh, maybe like this is something that I got comfortable doing and maybe this is something I need to change. And that's tough because I still think I'm 27, I'm young, let me do me. But marriage is great. But my friends come up to me and ask me, hey, bro, should I get married? I'm like, nope, but I'm, I'm happy in my marriage. Hmm. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, dude, first of all, if you're asking me whether or not you think I, I you should get married, like you, that's a, fr- a signal, like don't get married. It doesn't matter what other people think. Don't, don't ask me what, whether or not you should get married. Mm. You should tell me you're getting married or tell me you're thinking about proposing, mm. you know? Um, although I did ask, uh, I told, I told one of my friends that, um, I was thinking about proposing, and they advised me not to, mm. even though I knew they were in a happy, whatever happy means. Mm. You know, they were they were married. So I was like, all right. Kind of hearing that made it real. It's Marriage is real. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Mm. It's also super normal. I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question. It's like, yeah. I married my best friend, so mm. I don't think everyone does that. I don't know if everyone does that. But it's chill. It's pretty chill for us. And and uh, when there is tension or conflict, I like to think because I I went to force 
years of um, school for acting. And I like to think of things in terms of drama. And so I think that there are certain things, certain moments, um, like people want to call them fights. I just think that it's energy that needs to play itself out in a dramatic way. Mm. And whether or not both parties are attuned to that and aware that it just is, it needs to play itself out in a weird social way. It's like something that we're programmed to do. It's like animals in a jungle just going like, grab a banana and one monkey grabs the banana from that other monkey. It's like, rah, rah, rah. And then they share the banana or whatever. And they're like, all right, whatever. Wish I had a whole banana, but this is fine. It's like that. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if that helps. It's pretty normal. Yeah. Hella interesting to me. It was definitely, I mean, again, I'm using language that's specific to my spiritual context mm-hmm. growing up, but I mean, marriage was definitely an idol for me. Purity was. I remember my youth group leader being like, so when are you getting married? I was like 16 what? years old, 17 years old. And like when I'd come home to that, the church that I was going to growing up, when I'd come home from college, he'd ask if I had like a lady in my life or if someone that I was wanting to settle down with. And this idea, this obsession with adding bodies to the community yeah, just didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Just because I'd also at that point experienced friends of mine getting divorced and just like a, a, a cultural shift in how we viewed, and again, I can only speak as you know, a white man from the South, which is a very specific area of the States that has, a, like to your point, very specific cultural heritage. Um, but I always, I started to see my idea of marriage start breaking down, even right. separate from my faith breaking down. I just saw that the pomp and circumstance not necessarily equating to joy. Right. So in my search for joy, sometimes in, in past relationships that I'd been in where it was either the both of us were not supposed to be together and there were issues or because of my own intimacy issues or my own emotional trauma that I'd experienced, mm-hmm. I saw marriage, even while I was dismantling this idea of marriage as a solution, I saw marriage as a solution to my problems. Maybe I'll mm. get maybe mm. I'll get over my intimacy issues when we're married. Right. Maybe I'll right. fall in love with her when I'm married. And it sounds trite. I think that these are probably things that a lot of us have felt. No, definitely. But, I felt that too. I feel yeah. a lot. I felt like a lot of our troubles, like even um, troubles that were specific to our relationship, would be fixed mm-hmm. through marriage, and they weren't. Yeah. But I think through time, which marriage can give you, is it's a contract. Like at the end of the day. So you put in the time, Mm -hmm. you can fix those things. So if anything, it's a nice accountability system, to be honest. Um, I like the idea of bettering myself. And I think that's easier to do with someone that you trust. Like, that's why, you know, I started doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And um, in my gym the floor above me is Muay Thai and the floor above that is MMA where they kind of marry all of the martial arts together to fight, you know, these fighters don't go into the ring and they don't train for the fight alone. And life is a fight. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, I believe in building a team around me and, Mm -hmm. and for me with my relationship, it just there, it didn't make sense to do anything else. 
what other step is there? Why not? Like what, who cares? And going back, like, would I, would I get the state involved? This, this sounds like millennial talk, <laughs> but would I, you know, would I sign the papers? Would we do the whole ceremony thing? Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I don't wear my ring. It's because a lot of the stuff I do requires me to take it off. But like part of me also wants to kind of say like, I could be married and not wear this ring. It's mm. chill. Be chill. It's okay. Mm. It's life. Mm. Yeah, obviously, you know, my context isn't one where I've been close enough or in a healthy enough relationship where uh, making that commitment will both better myself and the other person. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. there yet, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of finding a partner that wants to dismantle harm or provide healing to ourselves or our community or our family or our friends or our cities that's amazing like that's that's what i want of course right and the concept of marriage as being something that is even apart from the spiritual ramifications or definitions i see it as something super healthy when it comes to creating and bolstering a healthy network of humans who are caring for one another Right, even just from like an animalistic perspective. Yes, like we are bolstering our community in that way. Yes, I think that's great. I do too. You know, you mentioned something earlier, and we were talking about it downstairs when you said like this exercise between two people, like this transfer of energy. Uh, and you mentioned acting. <coughs> I was taking these acting classes. We were talking about this earlier. And specifically Meisner classes. It was the first acting class I ever took. And this was in 2014 when I was about to move back to Atlanta. And Tiffany Michener was my teacher. She taught Meisner. And she had two rules, no fighting and no fucking. So we would enter into this space and we'd start doing repetitions where you would say something to me. You would see something in me. You'd say, you are present. And I would have to respond, I am present. It has to be 100% 100% sincere and authentic. And I had to repeat what you said about me to you about myself. Mm-hmm. But what happened though is as soon as I would enter those spaces, I was a completely different person. I was still authentically who I am as Asher, but there was like, for, for lack of a better word, a darkness, um, almost an aggression in me and almost a, a there was a power to me that I hadn't experienced before, where some of my partners in those groups would step back and look at me and wouldn't say, you're kind, you're sweet, you're nice, you're handsome. They'd say, you're crazy. And I would look at them and see something in them and I would <laughs> yeah. say, you're afraid, you're afraid of me. And huh. they would respond, I'm afraid of you. What? And so even within acting, I realized that there is a level of, a level of exposure and muscle growth and knowledge about myself that I hadn't realized until I truly let myself to be on the mat, right? I had to be on the mat and like be wrestling to, to bring a full circle to your analogy of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah. I had to actually wrestle with someone yeah. Yeah. in a safe place yeah. where I wasn't fucking or fighting. I was just wrestling with who I was as a human, not even just who I was as a man, but as a human being, Asher is both, happy and blessed. Asher is both kind and powerful. Asher is both manipulative and helpful. And they have to exist together. Mm-hmm. Asher is both hurt and helpful. Yeah. I mean, if we want to 
kind of bring it back to the whole Christian upbringing thing. We look at God and his creation. We're, you know, not, not just the world, but us, like we're created in the image of God. Well, then if that's true, look at the stuff that humans do. And if we're created in the image of God, an image is a print, right? A print of God. Like, okay, so the stuff that we do is like our creator then. If we're going by that logic, like there in the world, there are things that we look at and perceive as bad, probably because they're dangerous for us. Doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. Like lava is hot. And if you jump into a pool of lava, you'll die. But lava is not bad. Without lava, we wouldn't have land and we wouldn't have dirt and soil and trees and we wouldn't be here. So it's like the, it, it all exists on a spectrum. Or maybe a circle. Who knows? Like, what makes Michael Michael? It's it's all there. It's all on a spectrum. And we label things as good or bad because of our upbringing. But maybe we can we can look back and just think this is a part of me, right? Maybe developing this part of me isn't helpful for my community or for myself. So those things I don't pursue doesn't mean that they're not me. It doesn't mean that they're good or bad. It just means it's a part of me that I'm not pursuing. Hmm. I think with my acting training, I got to explore and unlock a lot of weird places too. Places that I didn't know were there, places that I knew were there. And I, I knew it was a safe space. Things that I could not do outside of that space. And that's okay. I think it's okay to find those spaces. And it's okay to acknowledge that those places exist because it's a part of you mm. right and it's like this is for the sake of argument let's agree this is god's creation like this is god's world if you know if we both agreed that okay then all of this is god's world it's not like parts of it you can't pick and choose it's like all of it everything you see then you know there's like this weird i remember growing i also grew up in the faith in the Christian church. And I remember thinking, this is, there's one thing that's weird is like, they kept hammering home this concept of we're not of this world. And that seems just so weird to me. Mm. Well, we live here. Everything that we do is here. Everything that we know is here. Everything we need to live is here. All of our important relationships are here. All of our memories are here. Everything that we do, even if you're a Christian and you believe that, everything you do for the God that you serve is here, though. So to have that mindset is kind of weird to just keep, you know, pulling yourself out of the only context that you have. Like, I think that we are, this is our home. This is important. This is our world. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. And <clears throat> to play devil's advocate, Christianity is based on reward. So, right. you know, Christ came to die for us to save us from our own sins so that one day our reward would be eternal, eternal connection life. with right. him, right. a.k.a. eternal life, right? Yeah. And so to me, it almost makes sense. Scriptures make sense where we're not of this world because our reward is not the current world that we have right but it's eternal life right right right, right. um 
and I and to a certain extent, even though I disagree with that ideology, the Left Behind series makes sense to me because if we're talking about in that context, because if we're talking in the about context, reward, yeah, makes sense. right? Like we're not supposed to be of this world. Then like people are going to bounce. I had this idea. Know? I yeah. still, I still think that those, those books are, aren't helpful when it comes to actual true interpretation of scripture. No, but they're entertaining. They're entertaining. And they, if anything, what they do is they affirm that idea of we are not of this world. We belong somewhere else. We're storing our treasures in heaven. Our treasures being, where the work that we're doing points us to the eternal life that we'll have, the reward we'll have. And some people say that that re- reward will not look like a separate heaven, but a new earth right. that, will look, that will look and feel similar, but redeemed. Um, I always had an issue, though, and, for, and I want to hear what you're about to say, but I always had an issue because I felt as if believers around me were not investing, hmm. truly investing, into the human's that needed help in this world. I did not grow up surrounded by homeless ministries, surrounded by support for homeless LGBT youth. Hmm. Uh, I was not surrounded by Christians who voiced any desire to share human dignity with people who are different than them. So the idea of even loving the world was morally subjective in my opinion. Like that's something as a as someone who's outside of faith now who I'm, I'm not a believer anymore, I have to wrestle with what does moral subjectivity look like for me? Because that's what my life is at this point. Not to continue to categorize myself, but philosophically speaking, I believe that my morality is subjective. And one thing I've also realized is within different Christian denominations, morality is still somewhat subjective. Some people interpret scripture in such a way that the queer community that is sinful living into your quote-unquote gay lifestyle is a sin. Other Christian communities don't believe that. Right. Well, that's that in of itself is moral subjectivity. Right. Based on the same scripture. Just different translations. Different different interpretation, different translation, sure. Different interpretation, that's and, what I meant. Yeah. But our translation also is just like from from Hebrew to English, or to German, right, to English. It's just the amount of translations the Bible has gone through. Who knows what we're reading at this point, basically. Yeah. But also, yes, with with the scriptures that churches are working from today, there are so many different denominations. And then within those denominations, there are sub-denominations. And then you got, you know, within those sub-denominations, you got different churches. And then within those churches, you have different mm-hmm. small groups. And I would even say those belief systems that are that differentiate from one another, at the end of the day, boils down to subjectivity when it comes to the moral affairs of everyday life. Yeah, everyone kind of p- is picking and choosing yeah. for themselves and for the for the people that they find that are most in line with what they believe. And again, like I I see myself as a true definition of it of an agnostic, which is I'm constantly searching for the truth and I'm not proud enough to think that or even educated. Enough is that to what be- an agnostic is? Mm-hmm. It's a very active definition. Like I think growing up when I heard agnostic or we talked to my Christian friends about agnostic friends of ours. I felt, and I believe that they were lazy, huh. which was untrue. Yeah. In fact, agnosticism is is searching for the truth. It doesn't mean that you found it. Well, I mean, if that's what that is, I I would hope that everyone is agnostic. In yeah. a weird way, because yeah. if you claim to, even if you're Christian, right? If you claim to know God, who 
dude, search, search. You know, you don't know. You don't know God. We don't know what's in the ocean. Mm-hmm. He created this planet. He gave us this planet. If we can't figure out everything in this planet, how can we figure out him or her or it? Mm-hmm. They, them, God, whatever. Yeah. It's crazy. And I also, you know, I want to give a shout out to my close buddies who are more educated in the scriptures than I am. And like the work and the labor they've put into the actual <coughs> Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Like their words have a lot of power to me, even as someone who's outside of the faith now. I still see them as important partners with me in order to grow as a human being. Mm-hmm. I will never allow myself to be stuck in an echo chamber mm-hmm. of either liberal ideologies, conservative ide- ideologies, Hindu, Muslim, Taoism, yogic values. Yeah. Like I need human beings who are different than me, yeah. even those I disagree with, to be in my life. Because yeah. if I'm constantly searching for the truth, I need to humbly, ex- humbly approach it as a learner. Mm-hmm. A student. A student. And perhaps yeah. something will change. Honestly, Michael, like perhaps I do not feel what someone, what someone, would, someone would call the Holy Spirit in me. Mm-hmm. But perhaps one day I will. Do you feel the need to help people? I sat down do with... Do you feel the, the Spirit to help people? I sat down with my mentor. It was our first meeting. Her name is Iabo Onopede. Mm-hmm. She's Nigerian, and we had a long conversation about Atlanta, about inclusion, about who I am as a white man in the city of Atlanta, the work that I want to do, where do I begin, how do I educate myself. I have a diverse group of friends, racially, sexually, culturally, politically, but what do I do? How do I start? What can I do to take care of the city for which I love? And she took my piece of paper and she took a pen and she wrote something down and she turned it around and gave it back to me and on it it said Asher Payne is a dispenser of dignity and it was in that moment that I realized that's the joy mm. like that's that's where all this joy is, is pointing to so when you ask like do you want to help people I consider it at 30 years old I mean I'm not hopefully I'm less than halfway through my life Right, but at 30 years old, at the very least, I'm a dispenser of dignity. So, do I want to help people? Yeah, absolutely. Do I understand why? Am I doing it for a reward? I, I don't. I don't. I don't believe that. I don't. And so, it comes down to staying in the present moment yeah. and subjectively <laughs> choosing morality in order to dispense dignity to humans that I honestly believe have not had dignity dispensed to them. So do I want to help people? 100%. But is it nuanced and complex? It is, for sure. And I I don't think anything as... Some may approach it in a super simple way, and I try to every day, because I don't know all the answers. But man, my my mind is like all over the place. I love digging into this shit. And so... It's Sorry. It's very unclear. Yeah. Like, that's what's scary about it. I think that's what people have aversion to. Whatever you want to call it, agnostic or just searching for that joy. I think they, it's like we were talking earlier with um, some some of my creative friends of mine that are, they see the risk of searching for joy in other areas. It's, I think it's also true of religion and what we want to believe uh, with our spirit, you know? We want to 
try to make sense of that. So things that are unclear don't really help us. I think we live in a time now where there's so much information and so much opportunity to serve dignity, if you will, whether that's, you know, content, you know, media content or practical help, you know, whatever that is, you know, we, there's so much opportunity to do that now. Whereas I can see, you said you, you, you see how left behind makes sense within the context. I can see why the need for a belief system to make mm -hmm. sense and to be super clear was needed within the context. But now it's like we live in a time where it does feel like the truth is out there. It feels like joy is out there for us to find. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, if you're in a, an environment in a community where you, you don't, you feel like there is no joy, but everyone says that this is where you're supposed to have joy. Listen to that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have it. This kind of doesn't really even have to do with being an artist. Like this also applies to being an artist, but also as a human being, like go find your joy. Mm -hmm. Well, creativity exists as an artist within being in relationship with others. Innovation yeah. exists within relationships. Yeah. Experimentation. Yeah. Curiosity, learning with people that you don't with people you don't, you don't even know d agree with and on everything. With. Yeah. That's why I think like anything that's helping you, that's going to contribute. Like even if uh, you, we're in a play and we're different actors, we have different processes. Pro pro Processy, it's that's fine. Yeah. Whatever gets you to work and whatever gets you to in the space and the stage, mm. let's do it. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and know, who, I know my lines. You know your lines. Let's, <clears throat> let's do the scene. Yeah, and you know it's it, everything became really clear to me. We were on tour. My band was on tour. This was probably seven ish years ago. Mm-hmm. At the end of every single show, it was so important to me to talk to as many people as I could, both strategically from a marketing perspective, but also the art that we were creating was meant to be shared and meant to inspire others and to also give something personally to those listening. Hmm. So what would it look like on a personal level to invest in every single listener? How much more powerful could that art be? And I remember talking to our guitarist at the time, and the, the point being is my brain is different. I am wired differently than my guitarist, Nate. Nate viewed everything a little bit more from a operational standpoint, a fiscal standpoint, the, um, like an X, Y, and Z approach. And that is completely necessary. And I'm approaching this from, but we are giving people joy or we are allowing people to be sad, which is a part of joy. We're allowing people to feel inspired. How much more inspired would they be with that human connection? Mm. Right? Um, and so, I don't, even, I don't really know what I was going with this. Oh, yeah, the idea of like creativity within an artist's work. To me, everything is focused on the humanity of someone. Like when I, I feel human when I listen to the new Sego record, mm. you know, or when I sing Betty Who, or when I'm listening to you know, sad boy white music, you know, or like hip hop. Like there's, there's a humanity that I feel like a realness yeah. to my life. And yeah. that's artistic creativity, but shows up in humanity. Yeah. And not, we're all different. And not all of it is pretty. No, 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 not at all. Like yeah. things don't have to be pretty to speak to you. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. There are a lot of things about Atlanta that aren't pretty. No. No, we're, we are, last year, my friend Susanna, 
did some research and found that <coughs> we were, this is the most segregated we've been since 1954 in the city of Atlanta. And a lot of it has to do with the amount of growth. We were like number Whoa. four in the States for business growth in 2018. Wow. But if you think about it, gentrification, which is an economic, um, a symptom of economic growth, just pushes people, specifically in a city like Atlanta, that was majority black, pushes them outside of the city, right? It's a, it adds a level of division between demographics, gentrification does, which means that we currently are the most segregated we've been in over 60 years. Jeez Louise. But that doesn't mean that we aren't experience, experiencing immense progress socially. I right. think we are. Like sure. there are really there are some amazing nonprofits doing wonderful work. There are amazing lawmakers in the state of Georgia doing amazing work to provide dignity to humans that otherwise weren't experiencing it, that are providing inclusion and equity within the racial space. But the city of Atlanta still has so much. It's not a black and white issue. Yeah, well, tell the nuance, yo. <laughs> There's a lot points. of gray. There will always be pay points, but that's why I love yeah. the South. Yeah. Because the South fucked up in so many different ways. Sure. And because of that, I mean, I think about this way. Creativity is maximized within struggle. Oh, yeah. The South breeds amazing creativity. Exactly. And if you think about it, I mean, think about New York, wow. right? Like, um Areas that artists can afford are usually poor areas, low-income areas. Mm -hmm. So, like, think about Williamsburg back in the day. It's where the early artists live. Greenpoint. Gentrification happens. So now all those artists move elsewhere. Gentrification happens. All those artists move elsewhere. Gentrification right. happens. All those artists move elsewhere. But the right. reason why people are moving into Williamsburg, moving into Greenpoint, were because of the cultural significance that the artists created. So it's a cycle, Right. A lot of people see the city of Atlanta, all the cool shit that the black community created via hip hop, via food, um, uh, cultural engagement. And they're like, okay, now I want to fuck with that. And so they come in. The only problem is now they're pushing the artists out fiscally hmm. and the true Atlantans out. So now the struggle is elsewhere, right? Yeah, yeah. Or it's compounded elsewhere. The artists are moving to other areas. Yep. And those areas are going to become culturally significant. And then those who have affluence and money will be like, oh my gosh, that area is cool now. Now we'll move there. And this, I, let me preface, I'm, I can't preface this. Here's my epilogue. I am not educated enough economically to go toe to toe with someone who could completely refute me. And I hope that whoever's listening, if you have arguments against this, please teach me. I want to be educated. But from what I see, just from simply, simple strategy and simple logic, that's just what's happening in cities. So if you think about the South, like to your point, there's so much struggle and so much harm that was mm -hmm. done. But like our era of rock music came from jazz, mm -hmm. came from blues, which all came from the black community. Soul food came out of struggle. That was slave food, which is now being served at all these really white owned fine dining restaurants in the cities. Right. That's now being seen as a, this amazing art form. When like it was just birthed out of struggle. Blues were just sad songs about the state in which these humans were living. And now it's evolved into pop music, rock music. It's I mean, it's shaped the sound that most of us love. Yeah. Like Yeah. That's crazy. So in what ways would you say you are finding joy and 
and sharing that, like passing that forward to others hmm. right now. What are you doing right now? Hmm. You qu- you, it, I think we, we quit the uh, storytelling at opera was no longer the source of your joy. What was what's next? What was next? <clears throat> I found a lot of joy in touring. I found a lot of joy in being in a relationship with a lot of people in Athens. And then when my brother and I moved back into Atlanta, I saw so many humans doing so much impactful work for the city of Atlanta. Hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm falling in love with this city. And from a relationship point of view, I can't say that I love the city of Atlanta if I'm not investing in and working to make the city a better place. Otherwise, I'm just a consumer. And it's actually a a very unhealthy relationship because I'm just consuming that other person, which is the city of Atlanta. Hmm. I can't say that I love my city unless I am doing good work and impactful work to make that city better and to give dignity to Atlanta and to the humans that live in it. And simply put, all that it looked like was finding Heroes is a dramatic word, but finding the heroes, the change makers who are doing the most good, those nonprofit partners, social justice activists to a certain degree, and finding ways to support them, not as a white hero or a white savior, but as someone, again, approaching it from a, a stance of learning and humility. What can I do to support you in the work that you're doing to make Atlanta better? Because I love this city, and I want it to, I want it to be better. So that's yeah. the work that I've been up to. I've been... I did some acting for a bit. Uh, again, the Meisner thing where I was basically like told that I was a crazy person and that I was hella dark and that I should get the hell out of there. And but maybe was th- that was just them processing their own stuff. That's true. Maybe they were talking to themselves. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely a possibility. And I did some acting stuff. I got, I got an agent. <clears throat> I was the face of the Yellow Pages app for a little bit. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And then... Of the app? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think, yeah, the commercials ran for a little while. They're pretty funny. I think if you Google YP Ultimate app, it pops up on Google search. It's, it's pretty interesting. You keep look it going. Up? As, okay. Yeah, I will as you keep going. Uh, and then I got a really fun gig as the lead in this kind of indie television show that was being shot in Asheville. But one thing I realized, man, I, my brother is, does sound on sets. And so a lot, he's been doing it for years. And mm-hmm. so a lot of the crews in Atlanta know him. And as soon as I would get on set, I'd go straight to the sound guys. And I'd be like, hey, do y'all know my brother? And if they did, awesome. If they didn't, I didn't care. I felt like I always had more in common with the crew than I ever did any other actors. Yeah. And it was that yeah. same opera thing. I, just, I felt as if there was a level of niche and type that I just didn't fit into as an actor. And I, I felt as if I didn't have anything in common with anyone else who was part of that industry. And I'm generalizing because there are a lot of friends of mine who are actors that I'm hella close with, but I didn't get joy from being on set. Hashtag set life, hashtag set joy. Like I did, I didn't, I wasn't posting about it on Instagram. I didn't, I wasn't looking forward to it. So I moved on. It's as simple as that. And perhaps, and I, I, I'm not a quitter. Like I'm not someone who steers away from challenge or discomfort. In fact, leaning into discomfort is the most important thing I do every single day. It's my filter. Like it's, we can, it's, it's yoga, right? So finding that healthy tension and leaning into discomfort and living in that discomfort, what does that provide? Comfort eventually. 
right? Right. Like I may be afraid of a room because the door is closed, but once I open the door and start shining some light into it, that room doesn't become unknown anymore. It becomes known, mm. right? So this isn't me just being like, I'm uncomfortable. This is a challenge. I'm out. It's that I have gotten to know those gut feelings that I get when I'm actually experiencing joy and I'm experiencing impact that I have and when I'm not. And I felt drained and I felt depleted. I didn't feel as if I was being impactful, that I, my cup was being filled. So I, I kind of stopped acting. And then I focused primarily on experimentation, innovation within the city of Atlanta. I work for Lululemon now, which in and of itself is kind of a crazy company. Um, but it's a company that's also made some mistakes and experiences a lot of struggle. And I think that they're, like I said, out of struggle comes a lot of creativity and a lot of growth. Um, and they've afforded me some opportunities to resource those humans in the city of Atlanta who are doing the most good. Hmm. Right. So like, shouldn't every corporation be doing that? Like there is a trend right now for socially responsible corporations, thankfully. And that's something that our generation has been calling out and especially the generation coming up, Generation Z is asking for. And so if there's a way that Lululemon could use, could use its resources for yoga access to kind of maybe negate some of the hurt it's perpetuated in terms of inclusion or body diversity or... Um, you know, anything that we've seen in the press in, this, mm -hmm. in the past 20 years now, mm -hmm. if we can use those resources to actually provide a healing and a balm to our cities through yoga, through nonprofit access, through giving these directors of nonprofits amplification, then I want to continue to work for that company. So that's what I'm doing right now. That's beautiful. Do you practice as well? I do. I, I focus primarily on restorative yoga, uh -huh. yoga nidra. I love sleep yoga i love yin yoga where what i is sleep yoga sorry i want to hear about your yin yoga but what is sleep yoga yeah i mean it's not actually a technical term but yoga nidra is basically allowing oneself oh. to be in specific poses bolsters blankets where you are meant to focus primarily on breathing your meditative state and only a handful of poses throughout the entire practice where there is an allowance of rest that you are given where if, mm. it is, if this is the time for you to meditate and sleep, then sleep. Oh. I remember doing restorative yoga with the members of Organized Noise, who've become really close buddies of mine. If you, if you don't know Organized Noise, they're the production team that created Dungeon Family. So that we're the mentors for Big Boy and Andre. You know, Killer Mike is part of Dungeon Family. Future Now is part of Dungeon Family. They, they produced Janelle Monae's new record, or at least some of the tracks off of it. Um, ones that I, think she, I think she may have won a Grammy on one of those, one of those records. Either way. I remember I was practicing yoga next to Sleepy Brown. Sleepy Brown um, wrote, Ain't nobody to ask me, I'm just so fresh ugly. Okay. Yeah. So he wrote that hook. He wrote a, a bunch of hooks yeah. for Outkast. And timeless hooks. Timeless hooks. Like he performed with Big Boy at the Super Bowl. That was him wearing the red jacket. His, That's like, like he's, the he's, worst he's like person to practice next to. My practice would have been so distracted. Well, guess what? Sleepy was asleep. Oh. Oh, he, he had, he was during yoga nidra, but it's perfect, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Like, I need he to and I this. were next to each other, like there, and I heard him rest. Oh man, right? Like he was in that. He he allowed himself to meditate and to rest. Seeing someone who basically created southern hip hop next to me, yeah, 
Like that was powerful. powerful. And so yeah. I, I, I practice those forms of yoga, honestly, to allow myself to rest because grinding shit out. Yeah. I do that. Like that's my thing. Right. So how am I taking care of myself? How am I balancing out this grind and this desire to like create change? Uh-huh. What am I doing to create change for myself? Whoa. And a lot of it just shows up in rest. That's so yin yoga, crazy. yoga nidra, restorative yoga. Is resting a muscle that you can develop? Because uh, it takes me a while to go to sleep. And there are certain people that when they need to rest or need to take a nap, they can do it. I am not that way. Mm. And oftentimes when I'm woken up, like I'm up, but it, I'm, I'm curious now, is it, maybe it's just something I don't practice. Mm. I don't practice taking that time. Mm. I think it's, it looks different for a lot of people. It's definitely complex. Yeah. I some mean, people I, nap periodically. Yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, there is actually a, there's a movement right now. I'm going to mess this up. But there's an Instagram account that talks about that's napping. And it's specifically, it's a, it's a black-owned concept. And it's been fascinating. Um, I think it's like the religion of sleep. Or I mean, that's, that's that Killer Mike episode for Trigger Warning. But <laughs> y'all need to watch Trigger Warning if you haven't seen it. It's amazing. I haven't. Oh, my gosh. It's so great. It's such an amazing depiction of the city of Atlanta, as well as just how brilliant and innovative Killer Mike is. It's called Trigger Warning. It's on Netflix. Watch it. Done. We're sponsored by Netflix. Um, make sure you watch uh, Evil Genius as well as Trigger Warning by Killer Mike. Thank I you I was much. about to do the HBO. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong noise. Brought to you by um, Kathleen Kennedy and Disney. Everything's brought to you by Disney. Yeah, it's a little scary. It is a little scary. Well, actually, is it scary or is it just a natural occurrence of capitalistic business. Yeah, sure. Which might be scary to some people. I guess. Yeah. But it, but like, hmm. I mean, it, I think it's fun to be like, now that they, that because they've become such a huge conglomerate, perhaps I know that there is fear around a, a company like Disney owning media sources. Yeah. Like yeah. that—that's a worry. But otherwise, it's fun it's, to conspire. It's, but honestly, it's just a product of the American system, right? Which is it, the American system, as harmful as it's been in terms of equity racially. It's a system where people are rewarded doing specific things, and so it's just a product of that, right? Yeah. Maybe actually, I'm actually as is Amazon. Amazon too, yeah. Not good or bad. It just is. Yeah, it's it's a product of a system. Yeah. Um, okay, so what? I mean, in many ways, you've already kind of answered this, but with everything you're doing now, where you're searching for joy, right? But do you have a picture of things that you want to do that you're not doing, or? Or even if it's corporations that you want to work with that you're not like, what what picture do you have? What do you? If you do find yourself close to that joy, what does that look like? I guess. Yeah, I want to learn how to skateboard. Yeah. Yes, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, really? Like, I, yeah, I want to buy a helmet. Like my buddy Frederick Levesque got me a skateboard. He gave me a skateboard, and I want to learn how to skateboard. When I was a kid, I was riding on a skateboard 
I was sitting on it with, on my ass yeah. and I fell and it fucked up my ankle and I went inside and I was crying and it hurt so bad. And I didn't touch a skateboard after that because <laughs> I was so afraid. Right. Yeah. I but now that. I want to, everyone that, that knows how to ride a skateboard, they're the coolest people in the world, in my opinion. So I want to learn how to ride a skateboard. I can ride a skateboard. God, Michael, teach me. I could. Oh, you know, another thing too, one thing that Lou Lemon does is a lot of goals, a lot of like vision and goals uh-huh. where you, you, you embrace this concept of full opportunity, like take away social constraints, hmm. physical constraints, capitalistic constraints, personal, emotional constraints. 10 years from now, who are you? Where are you? What are you doing? Meditate on that, write your vision. And then there's a goal portion where you have 10 year goals and 10 years I will own my own house. In 10 years, I will own my company that provides uh, well-building within Uganda and emo- emotional goals, personal goals, and then it goes to five-year goals. Okay, five-year goals. What, what are the steps that you'll need to take in order to get to that 10-year vision? That's five years from now, and then one-year goals. A lot of people have reacted strongly against that model because it feels confining, right? It's like, I don't know what I'm doing a year from now. Yeah, maybe I want to not be as much debt. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know what I'm doing five years I'm from now. I'm backpacking in Europe. I was like, what are you doing? You're a corporation. Like, you're telling me to, like, figure this shit out. Yeah. But what sure. I realized is goals and writing down my goals, all I'm doing is what? I'm just figuring out what gives me joy. Mm. I'm just putting it on paper. Yeah. Because there are things that I wrote down. I wrote 10 years. I remember when I first moved to Atlanta, I wrote down, in 10 years, I will be accepting an Oscar. And I look back on that now and I was like, that's, that doesn't give me joy. In fact, that would be a vehicle for me to be in relationship with more people and to give more people an opportunity to listen to them and know who they are and give them dignity. So if anything, like the Oscar doesn't really matter. It's my primary goal of wanting to dispense dignity. So really I could use any vehicle to do that. Yeah. Whether it's skateboarding, or visiting New York, or drinking San Pellegrino. Yeah, exactly. So these goal, these vision and goal exercises was just an opportunity for, for me to exercise the joys of my life and to unpack them. I guess that's what goals are anyway, right? Like figuring out what would give you the most joy. It's a vehicle. I mean, maybe that's joy. This is the pursuit. Cause I don't know if everyone's pursuing it. This sounds like pursuit. This sounds active and maybe you'll never get there, but can you imagine a life where you're not trying to pursue that? Or if you're trying to believe that you have it in an area that you don't, like that's kind of torturous. I mean, I can imagine, I think we both can imagine that. Yeah. I mean, we've, I mean, we've both talked to each other about how we've experienced depression Yeah. and, in points of our lives where there's a sense of uselessness or for me, it wasn't as if I wasn't loved. It was that I was unable to love. Hmm. I was incapable of loving others. Hence, Hmm. why should I be on this earth? Right? So like the pursuit of joy was misguided. Hmm. And there, there, there have been many times where like, I've just rested in my depression or rested in my loneliness or rested in my self-loathing. 
right. and there was no searching. There was no active joy right. searching. Right. You know, I also let me. I would. I would like to make a clarifying statement as well. Yeah. I don't know if who I am as a man and my opinions about the world and human dignity uh-huh. were completely informed. They may have been completely informed by my upbringing in the church. And I don't want to be disrespectful enough to say that the structure that the belief system gave me didn't help inform this dignity that I want to give to humanity yeah. and the structure of joy searching that I do. Yeah. At the same time, that may also just be a byproduct of evolution and of evolution both physically and of my human consciousness. So I just want to make that distinction because I think the argument can be made, well, where did you get this idea of joy from? And I don't know. Right. I don't know if, should I have not grown up in the Christian church, if I had grown up a Muslim or Hindu, that I wouldn't have believed that it was that religious context or even that trueness of that God that informed this joy searching for me, that it may not be just a completely secular evolutionarily evolutionary byproduct. Right. I just want to make that clarifying statement. Yeah, that's fair. And it's also like, you know, there are some people where joy is not an option. Mm. So like we were saying earlier, it's all kind of messy. It's all kind of gray. Like some people don't have the option to better their situation or themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just tricky, man, because I don't know if I've suffered with like, like diagnosed depression, but I know what sadness feels like. I know what it feels like to be in a, a depressive state of like feeling like you're m- swimming through molasses and you're like your social interactions feel like syrup and you're just like whatever it is, you know, it's like that is a part of life for me and whether or not some, some people may struggle with hard, really hard, like, like you can put your fingers on what hurts and why, Mm -hmm. but then there's some things like in life that are just sad, you know, it's just like, it'll make you sad if you think about it. That's just life, you know, Mm -hmm. but some people just are living in for lack of a better term, hell, you know, Mm -hmm. some people are born in hell and just live in hell. Do you, do you, may, I cl- may I ask, do you mean, s- and I agree, and that is that what, I'm, what I'm also hearing too is in terms of like generational poverty, mm-hmm. lack of access to education, to counseling, to food, to social um, help, or those born into a system of disadvantage because of living in the States. I think that's the reality. Just time and place. Time it and could place. be someone in Houston, Texas. It could be a kid in Africa. You know, they always say, finish the food on your plate. The kids in, starving kids in Africa would love to eat that, which is a ludicrous like thing to say. But you know, there's probably, there probably is a hungry kid in Africa that would eat that plate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be Africa. It could be, New York, I could find you a kid that would eat a plate of food in New York. Mm -hmm. I see them. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a, it's not a generational thing. It's not a, 
first world thing. It's not, it's just time and place, man. It's like, you don't, we were saying this downstairs, you can never know someone's mind. Because there were times in your life where I was looking at you and you inspired me in ways that you didn't even know. You can never know someone's life. You can never know someone's life. Even these people that that are in a situation, A, in a situation bad enough to be asking for help publicly. B, they have a speech prepared. You know, they're comfortable doing it. They've done it before. Like, I see this every day on the trains. Like, people asking for help because they're in desperate situations in a city where, like, I struggle with things, but I'm not doing that, you know? And it's like, okay, okay, nothing is clear, nothing's clear. So I think that, like, I feel blessed to even have the opportunity to pursue joy. Whatever you want to substitute that last word out for, happiness, fulfillment, purpose. Like, I have, I have to be... I have to acknowledge that I'm f fortunate to even do that. Like I have time to like go to the gym. I have time to do this. I have this LaCroix, this sparkling water, you know, we're having this conversation. You know, it's like not everyone can do this. So it's like maybe the fact that we can even pursue it should give us joy. Mm. So uh, something that, uh, the, thank you for saying that. That's um, very humbling and um, super powerful. I'm, I'm on the board of this nonprofit called um, Trinity House, downtown Atlanta. And it's um, a men's home. It basically takes men either experiencing homelessness, specifically addiction, or they've been court ordered to go through a program 35 men, mm -hmm. they arrive at the house, shave their head, put on white shirts. They then can transition to green shirts where they have privileges within the house, around the house. It's a very Afrocentric program. Mm. They can then graduate to red shirts. Where if you're a green shirt, you can't walk into a specific room unless an elder of the house allows you to. And you graduate to a red shirt, you can grow your facial hair back and your hair, and you can start applying for jobs. You get a checking account. Mm. You get a little more structure, a little more space and autonomy then you transition to a black shirt and you're an elder of the house. And so there's this concept of structure within chaos that these men are given. And Michael, I have dinner with the guys all the time and they tell their stories and they share things with me that I have never experienced in my entire life. And I never will because of privileges that I've been afforded. And they have so much joy in spite of so much struggle. I, I, I don't, I don't understand how. And some, some, it's a faith-based program and some would say that it is the joy that they're experiencing is through the hope that they have in the Lord. The hope that they have in being reunited with their estranged families addiction took them out of those relationships but the hope that they have has all, I've been involved with them for four years now and I I don't know if I've respected and admired men more than the men that I've seen go through that program 
what what does what does their search for joy look like compared to mine? A completely different context. And like how how can the hope that I have compare to the hope they are choosing to have in the midst of such struggle? They are, they are more impactful to this world than I will ever be in my entire life because of their experiences and the hope that they've chosen to have. You know what? And that's, this is kind of coming full circle, right? Because that's relative hmm. to you. Just as you inspire and incite people without your knowing and they may be saying the same, similar things, you know, to you, about you, not to you, about you. Maybe not about because of your experiences, but because of the experiences that they had with you or because of things that they saw you do, you know. So I think, like, the joy is out there, and some of us have it. And if we have it, we can share it. And if we can see that other people can search for it in situations that are harder than us, then we can definitely do the same thing, you know? And I'm not going to act like there are, you know, we said time and place. I'm also not going to act like there are people that can't find or, you know, search for joy because of mental illness. Like, that's a real thing too, right? But, like, you know, I think as artists as creatives we have to think about what's helpful we have to think about like what what is gonna what's gonna help people and whether it's joy or happiness or fulfillment purpose like we need to find that for ourselves and we also need to that needs to be contagious mm-hmm. we can you, you know there are a lot of religious undertones to that but you can all just take it all out too what would this world look like if everyone was doing what they're on fire for? That'd be crazy. That'd be fun. Like things that that brought everyone happiness. I know there's someone out there thinking, like, oh yeah, but like some people get happy like burning buildings down. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm that's, I'm talking about skateboarding. Maybe like finding ways to help people through skateboarding, drama therapy whatever it is but you know if if you've put your vision board on a piece of paper or if it's just kind of loosely floating in your mind and there are things in there like oscars you know that that are just there but you kind of look at them and you don't really think that they bring you joy then like what why are you chasing that you know who is that going to help i look at my dad my dad is like, he's been the head deacon at our church, the church I grew up in. And he, uh, he's still there and his job is to help people. He finds like, you know, whether it's food or jobs or clothing, shelter, like he helps people and he helps other people help people. Like that's all he does. And so I got to like the age where I was like, 
I could kind of look at my life and the things I was doing. And I was like, well, who is this helping? This is what my dad's doing, you know? Not just, not because I look up to my dad and I should do everything my dad's doing. I'm just like, this is a man in my life I respect. His job is to help people and I can see how he's doing that. I don't want to do it like him. But am I doing that with what I'm doing? I don't know. What's floating in my head right now? Like these goals, a bunch of like random trophies, you know? Who cares? What am I, what am I running after here, you know? And I, and I got, I think we just got to keep that voice active. We can't sleep on that voice unless it's time and you're in sleep yoga. But if you're not doing sleep yoga, you got to stay awake to that. So my guy, this has been a great conversation. I think we started it downstairs. We brought it up here. And I think that, um, a lot, I think a lot of, I wish I had, I wish I had had this conversation year, a few years ago, just for me personally. It's easy to just do what's expected as a person, as an artist, but it's hard to like go out there and find what makes you happy. And it's scary. One of the things that I found is I've said it Brazilian jiu-jitsu it's scary dude every day before I go in there I'm scared you know sometimes while I'm doing it I'm scared but after it I feel really happy the stage brought that to me mm. and I'm sure it still would if I went and pursued it like that but right now that doesn't bring me happiness so I'm not going to invest my energy into that I don't feel like I'm going to be helping people doing that and if there are people out there that are doing that and you're preparing for your next audition and you want to help people through that, do that, you know? It's like nothing's black and white, nothing's clear. So it's kind of nice to have you visit and then like kind of fill in the gaps of, you know, who you are in my head. It's been help as an artist, you know, as a, as a friend and as an artist. Like, no, he hasn't, you're not giving up on any one thing. You're building something. Trying to, you say, serve dignity. Yeah. I'm trying to serve something, you know, as a creative. I'm trying to figure out what that is. Hmm. No, I'm happy to be here. I'm thankful. It's been seven years since we hung out, so. Well, Julie corrected it with, I think it's five. Five? Because oh. we've only been married for five years no. <laughs> that makes sense which does seem like kind of a long time but also not at all yeah like you were saying like marriage is kind of a big deal but it's also kind of not yeah so well thanks for letting me share all that and i thanks for like opening up this space it's it's a safe space but it's also a super brave space yeah so i, I appreciate you bringing being, bringing truth out of me thank you Thank you for sharing it, dude. I think a lot of people need to hear this. A lot of people, like, even if it doesn't, if they, you don't think it applies to you, listen, wrestle with it. Bring it to your work. Like, bring this, you say, this braveness, you know, this this space, like, what whatever we explore here, whatever it is, bring that to your work. You got to find it. It's not going to just be there. You know, don't do what's expected. Is there anything you would say? 
Yeah, I mean, artistry <clears throat> isn't confined to the industries mm. in which most artists live. Mm. Innovation, yeah. creation, experimentation can exist within human and social spaces, sometimes in more profound ways than musical. And that's what I learned. Well, what I learned is that what you just said, as well as much of what you've said in this podcast, you said be as better than better than I could have said it. So I'm not going to try to add to it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I love yeah. you. I love you too, man. I love you too. You want to end with like a um, we could do like a fun short Meisner exercise, or we could do a uh, we could do like a mind meld game. It's yeah. an improv game. Yeah, see mind meld. I don't know okay. what that is. Mind meld is this thing where we both start. I'm going to count down from three, okay. and we say the first word that comes to our mind, okay. whatever word is floating. And we do this a series of times until we meld into the same word. Okay. We did this last episode, and ended to, we ended up you know, finding the same word. But if we don't, it's okay, because we found the same word in our conversation. Do you do countdowns each time? Um, yeah. And I'll give it some time, you know, so that you can think. So it's okay. So it's kind of like word association. So whatever word you say and whatever word I say, yeah. then we're going to think of whatever word could marry the two words. We're trying to have that word be the same. Oh. So if I say, I'm not like, just like fucking around and doing like a random word just for the sake of being random. That's not helpful. No. So, okay. Look, yeah, if you okay. said blade yeah. and I said green, It'd be grass. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Done. Well, we're so good at this already. Done. Thank All you. All right. Good night, everybody. On. Have a good night. Okay. Here we go. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Clear your mind. Okay. Do a little it. like twenty, a two second sleep yoga. Okay. There we are. Shout out, Sleepy Brown. Sleepy Brown. Okay. Three, two, one. Butterfly. Vine. Three. Nature. Oh, wait. <laughs> fucking hell. Sorry. Nature. Okay. Yeah. Let's go f with vine and butterfly. Okay. You got to pick a different word. You're though. still counting down. Okay. You want to start over? Yeah, I'll start over. Yeah. But you get it. I'll do, I'll count down every time. Every time? Okay. Yeah. Or if you want to just lock eyes. Yeah, let's lock eyes. Okay, let's do this. I'll count down the first one. Yep. Okay. Three, two, one. Tattooed. Earth. Circle. Sphere. Globe. <laughs> Globe and sphere. Geometry. Planet, Planet and geometry. Mars. Okay. I'm getting close. Elon Curiosity. Musk. Curiosity. Oh. Okay. Okay. Curiosity. Elon Musk. Um. Tesla. Tesla. Yes. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's how we do it. Dude, you're the man. Yeah, you're the man. I respect you. I respect you I too. Up to you mm. as an artist, as a friend. Mm. So it's, I'm very happy to have you. Yeah, it's an honor to be with you, bro. All right, I love our friendship. Yeah. Same. Should we go to bed? Yeah, let's do it. Oh yeah, we should. Yeah.
This has been a Rock Rising Productions podcast. Thanks for listening.